I think there are very few sides in the world who pay enough attention to the mental side of the game right at the top end. And he said, if you want me to define genius, genius is balance on the edge of the impossible. If that was a real coaching focus, uh, I think, you know, quite a few teams would, would probably move up to another level. So we've we got a pitch, that a normal-sized pitch. It's got 8,400 square metres of space to play in. Um, at any one time, only, what, 30 players and a ref. There's only 31 square metres occupied. So 8,369 square metres empty. So when people talk to me about there's no space in the modern game, I sort of look. They tend to play the system as opposed to play what's going on around them in the game. So they don't look, they know what their role is and they just fulfil their role. But actually by fulfilling what their role is, it might be the wrong thing to do. Mm. Hey, hope you're keeping well. I'm Brian Moylet, former rugby player, now high performance mindset coach and welcome to the pod. This podcast is about well-being and high performance. And in it, you will learn how you can be happier, more fulfilled, and more successful in what you're doing. I recently wrote the book on how you become a pro rugby player, Forward by Robbie Henshaw, which went to number one in the charts, and you can get this now on Amazon and Audible, with the links in the show notes. Please connect with me now over on social media, at Brian Moylet, at Offfield Rugby, and my website is offfieldrugby.com. If you enjoy the pod, please subscribe to it and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. And also, you can send it on some friends. Would really appreciate that. All right, we'll get into today's episode. Cheers. Hey, hope you're keeping well. Today, I'm chatting with Brian Ashton, who played rugby in England, France, Italy, and among many other teams, coached Bath, Ireland, and England to... Yeah, World Cup final in 07. Uh, cheers for jumping on. Thanks. Great to see you again. I'm looking forward to our chat over the next however long. <clears throat> yeah, so I suppose with the start off with the World Cup coming up, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I People keep telling me it's, it's probably the most open <clears throat> competition there's been in the World Cup. Um, I. I sort of half agree with that and half don't because having been involved in a couple, um, they are different tournaments. It's not like anything else you play. <clears throat> so there are always um, opportunities for surprise, um, either good surprise or bad surprise. So I think most World Cups actually probably far more open than a lot of people outside rugby, as it were, um, realise. But, but genuinely, I think this year there are probably... I would say at this moment in time, sat here, three teams that I would think are in with a genuine shout of winning the tournament. Um, you could probably guess who they are. Um, I think they're the top three seeded, not the top three seeded, the top three teams on the world rugby list at the moment. France, France, Ireland, New Zealand, maybe not in that order. Maybe it's Ireland, France, New Zealand. I can't remember. But I think they're the ones who over the past... Well, I'll leave New Zealand for a moment. Certainly France and Ireland in this part of the world and Ireland down in New Zealand last year um, have showed that they're capable of uh, of not only mixing it, but winning it. 
with some of the big guns in the world rugby. Um, whether they can do it on a world stage or not will be a real breakthrough for them, as you probably well know, because I don't think they've ever been past, if my memory serves me correctly, the quarterfinal stage. Um, so that, that could be a big mental leap for some teams, but I've got so much faith in Andy Farrell as a leader to imbue the right sort of mentality within the club, uh, within the side, that um, from hopefully from Ireland's angle, that won't be an issue this time. The, the other issue, obviously, they've got, of course, is um, what happens if Johnny Sexton gets injured again, has not played for six months, because he's now got this three-month three uh, three-match ban, which eliminates him from the warm-up games. Because um, he's very much a driving force, I think, on the field uh, about how they play the game. So that'll be an interesting one. Uh, New Zealand seem to have recovered from there, from the trough that most people thought they went through last year. Um, they've discovered a front five, I think, that is now very competitive at the top end of world rugby. And there's never been any doubt in my mind, and I suspect a lot of other people's minds, that once they did that, then the ability to leash, unleash a, an, an attacking game, as well as their counter-attacking game, always makes them very, very dangerous opposition. France was the other team that I mentioned. Um, I'd love watching France over the past 12 months. Uh, <laughs> in a bizarre way, particularly enjoyed them at Twickenham last year when they put 50 points on England, but it was a masterclass in how to play rugby in so many different ways. Uh, and they've got, they've got so many game-changing players in their team, which means that you, they're, not, they're not as predictable as some of the other sides in the tournament, so you've got to be very watchful against them all the time. And when you've got guys like Dupont and Tamak, um, Aldrit and some of the other guys who play up front, were just very, very, very good rugby players. Um, not only Dupont at nine, Intermac at 10, Aldrich at eight. They're just great rugby players. Very smart, very intelligent, understand the game, understand the nuances of the game, when the game needs to be changed in, in mid-flow, as it were, without any instructions from a coaching staff. And again, that, that makes a side like that very, very difficult and very dangerous at times to play against. Mm. And when you talk about France there, and 100% agree, and it kind of reminds, thinking back as well, reminds me of the All Blacks of old a bit in that they can break open a game at any point and just run riot and score three, four tries and the game's over. Yeah, well, I think the All Blacks potentially could probably do that now yeah. as well. Uh, uh, sorry, if, if that's what you meant, I don't know. Uh, but France, certainly, yeah. I mean, and the French teams remind me of the French teams of old as well. The 1970s, 80s, when the game was still amateur. I mean, they produced some unbelievable rugby of, of its time with some very, very big, abrasive, but great ball-playing forwards. Um, and obviously some very silky, elusive, very quick backs. So, again, one of the things I always remember because I was playing rugby at that time and I actually played in France, as you know. And um, one of the things I always remember was do not kick the ball to France because they will destroy on the counter-attack. And, and it, it, I'm going back to the Twickenham game last October, uh, last this last Six Nations, 
And the number of times England just kicked the ball away. And I'm looking, thinking, why are you doing that? Don't you know the history of French rugby? Which is an interesting point, because I think a lot of players don't know the history of the game at all. Um, yeah. You know, so people talk about students of the game in a variety of sports. And it's a, it's a bit of a throwaway line, really. I mean, how many players are students of the game? Mm. And you mentioned there earlier, Andy Farrell, leader at Ireland. I can't remember timelines, but did you coach him? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Only briefly, because he came into rugby, got injured when he played at Saracens. But I, he then got back and played. He played some decent rugby for Saracens. I selected him. He came to the 2000, played in the 2006 Nations. Didn't play in all the games because he got injured again. But he went to the 2007 World Cup. But I've known Andy quite a long time. We're both um, from the same part of Lancashire, up in the northwest of England. So I've known him for a long time. And I, I watched him when he played uh, rugby league for Wigan. He played rugby league for Great Britain at the age of 18. I think he captained Great Britain at rugby league when he was 21, which was, was unheard of in the northwest because you've got to earn your strikes there. And uh, but but he was just a natural leader, and when he came into rugby union, he was a natural leader too. He sort of galvanised people around him, and whilst we didn't see him at his best, he was absolutely um, absolutely essential to our progress through the 2007 World Cup campaign because of his leadership and player management skills. <clears throat> so, what kind of stuff would that be, say, when he was in the camp? Um, I think it was just positivity, um, insistent on excellence, um, and never believing that he could be defeated. Um, you know, and I, a lot of people talk about that, but, but he sort of lived it, if that makes sense. It's, it's very difficult to explain. You sort of get some sort of an aura from guys like that. You know, I've, I haven't been around many people like that in my life to be honest um and I, I don't want to be blowing smoke up andy too much just in case something disastrously goes wrong for ireland at the world cup but he's he, i suppose above everything apart from being an outstanding player he was an outstanding person and uh you know at times in organized rugby organizations i've been involved in there's been lots of outstanding players but they've not been great people um, so to have a player who'd been there and done it, albeit in another code, but to be an outstanding person as well was uh, pretty useful. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and you mentioned there earlier how World Cups are more open than others, or people outside might think. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, I just think, uh, I think sort of alluded to it earlier on, that it's just a totally different tournament. You sort of, you almost feel as though you're trapped in a bubble um, for, depending on how far you go in the tournament, obviously for seven weeks or so. Um, and I think managing that, managing the downtime and making sure, making sure that players don't become obsessed with a quest for World Cup, World Cup glory is really important. Life still goes on outside the camp, and I think to connect with that uh, on a sensible, obviously, but fairly regular basis, and I'm talking about 
having wives and family there and uh, getting outside the, the training camp, going out in the evenings, um, etc. as a group or in small groups or even allowing players to go out, well, not individually because probably in pairs, etc., is, is really important. So that the life in the camp is, is like it would be back at home. Um, because I think if, if it becomes too, too restrictive, um, and then you're probably not going to get the best out of your players. It becomes a mental, it becomes a mental issue then. So I think, I think probably what I'm looking to say is that mentally keep the players free. Um, when the time comes, focus on preparation, focus on the game itself. But outside that, because you you will know as well as I do now that with the advent of uh, a million and one sports scientists in any organisation, there is always the opportunity, if that's the right word, probably not. It's probably the completely the wrong word. There's always the opportunity for sports scientists to throw things at you, both as coaches and players. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you seen what the, have you seen? And become so obsessed with all the the minutiae of that detail, probably none of which is going to apply once the game kicks off. Um, it sort of diverts you really from the task at hand. So to keep the mind free outside the preparation and the game times, I think is really, really important. Mm, yeah, hundred percent. That makes yeah perfect sense. And, and also that the the kind of sports science and there's like I say, there's so much information that it could be overwhelming. Well, overwhelming, and, and in fact, a lot of it not very useful. Um, I mean, I've always looked at sports scientists, and don't get me wrong, I think some of them do a great job. They just support what you want to do. Um, you, you look at it and say, look, this is what we're thinking of doing. This is what we've seen. This is what we need to improve in our game. Can you give me some evidence that I can show to share with the players to support this? Not for the sports scientists to come and say, this is how France play, this is how Ireland play, this is how New Zealand play, so this is how you've got to play. You know, you cannot base a game of rugby on data and analysis. Um, it's too emotional. Uh, too many things can happen between the first whistle and the last whistle. The referee these days can have a massive impact. The TMO can have a massive impact. Uh, players who are your, your best players can get injured. Um, they can have an area of the game can go completely wrong that you wanted to focus on as being one of the key areas of the game. So there's got to be a, a lot of uh, game intelligence, adaptability, flexibility, a lot of an emotional flexibility too. If things start going wrong, players have got to get back on track. That means a lot of teamship togetherness to, to come together on the field to get back on track, however that might be. You know, and uh, however much data people are at you, it's not going to be much use in situations like that. Yeah, well, I love you saying there, and like the being in the moment and being able to, yeah, just just be in the moment and play there yeah. versus, like, say, thinking, oh, the ten minutes before half time, this, the ten minutes after half time, this, in this area here, in that area here. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'm just sorry, I'm just writing something down so I don't forget. Yeah, so I would like to talk about the so throughout the game, we focus on the bigger picture and 
a lot of people might just assume, oh, that's winning the game. It actually, it might not be that. The bigger pitch we may have decided in our framework is something different than that. Because I think if you get too focused on too focused on the outcome, you forget about the process, and then things can go horribly wrong. So we got the bigger picture. But as you quite rightly say, Brian, we've got you know when you're involved, it's on the focus on the task at hand, you know, and it might just be catching and passing a ball. Mm. You know, but if you're thinking about other things, other distractions, diversions that have gone on, might go on in the future, etc., then you might even get a simple task like that wrong. <clears throat> So when people talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, about critical moments in a game, I think all the time that the ball's in play and you're involved directly in the action is a critical moment. Because until the game ends, you never know which of those critical moments are going to affect the outcome. So if I'm, so if I'm playing, let's say I'm playing in, number, in the number 12 shirt and... Uh, just across the halfway line, the opposition half, and I get the ball from 10 and drop it. So the opposition get a scrum. Then who knows what might happen from there? So what might seem a, oh, geez, we're all fed up. We've knocked it on. What might seem relatively innocuous at the time could actually lead to a game-changing moment. So I think that that real mental focus, and I, I really don't think, I think there are very few sides in the world who pay enough attention to the mental side of the game right at the top end. Um, that mental focus is, is absolutely crucial all the way through the game. I mean, the ball's only in play for, what, 35, 36 minutes in most games. So we're not talking about focusing for 80 minutes. <clears throat> it's a bit like the, how do you approach a World Cup tournament? You switch off at times. So somebody makes a mistake, somebody gets injured, switch off, switch back in again. I mean, yeah. whether that makes whether that makes psychological sense or not, I have no idea. I have no evidence, no science to back it up. You probably have because you're an expert in that area, and I'm not. But it just makes common sense to me. Oh, it it's, makes perfect sense. It's funny you say that because Ezan Asewa said exactly what you said there. He said that Joe Schmidt told him it that to treat the game like an NFL game. So when the when the ball gets kicked into the stand, switch off. And, yeah. you know, and then when the hooker hooker has the ball and he's getting, you know, loading it up, switch on. And it's yeah. exactly that switching on and off. And yeah, it's so interesting just what you're saying there. And I just, you know, know that when I played my best number eight second row call lineouts, I was just completely immersed in the right here and now. And I wasn't number 10. I know if you're playing number 10, you probably have to have a bigger picture. Uh, you're kind of, you know, you're driving it a bit differently and a bit more, you might have a, a bigger, yeah, you might be a bigger picture, but for a lot of positions, it's just the, the exact here and now, because like I say, the outcome doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Like, you know, you're, you just got to, you do your move right now. Yeah, absolutely. Slightly off topic, so I'll tell us to shut up if you want to. No. Um, talked about that, uh, that number 10 thing, bigger picture, etc. So I, I sort of have come up with a phrase over the past 12 months or so about players having space vigilance. So we've we got a pitch, that a normal-sized pitch. It's got 8,400 square metres of space to play in. Um, it's only one time, only, what, 30 players in a ref. There's only 31 square metres occupied. So 8,369 square metres empty. 
So when people talk to me about there's no space in the modern game, I sort of look look at them and think, really? Um, you must be looking at it a different way to me. But going back to what you're saying about the number 10 being the guy who looks at the bigger picture, I think if, if, and in some positions it's probably not possible, but if we can develop more players to have what I call space vigilance, who are constantly looking not only for space, um, but also for potential mismatches in terms of backs v forwards or vice versa, forwards v backs, etc. And I'm thinking largely, I think in some of the players that I coached with England, so Will Greenwood, Ian Balshaw, were two classic examples of Greenwood, very intelligent player, and had the added advantage of a back of being six foot five. So he could almost look behind the defence to see what was going on behind there. And Balshaw at 15, not everybody's cup of tea, but an outstanding reader of the game. Uh, and he was very good at, at seeing how defences set up, etc. And so could um, sort of communicate that with the guys in front of him, saying, look, you know, when we play off a line out, we go, go around the corner twice. They just fall around and leave big spaces on. If we reverse play and went back down, in the reverse direction, they'll leave a big space there. It's a chance for me and a couple of other backs to have a run at some of their lazy front five forwards who maybe not got around the corner and things like that. So that, for me, the more space-vigilant players you've got in your team, uh, the better. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I love that. love that idea. And, and geez, when you say 8,400 square metres and 31 square metres of, yeah, like the players. It's, and, and, uh, and, and, and I know, Brian, that it shuts down very, very quickly at international level. That space changes, closes, opens up, etc. But I mean, it's called test match rugby for a reason, isn't it? It's testing everything you've got and it's testing your vigilance of space. Uh, you know, step number one, then you've got to be able to execute it. So I think that's uh, maybe it's something that I don't know. A lot of coaches don't don't really focus on uh, that that sort of space management. I don't know. Maybe you know better than me about that. But I still get the impression a lot of coaches still do the traditional way of let's get our scrum right, let's get our line out, line out right, let's make sure you know we win our ball, quick ball at the breakdown. Breakdown's always an interesting word because if my car breaks down, I call for help. So the last thing I want is a breakdown, the same in rugby. That's, a, that's the thing to avoid. Going on the floor is not the thing to do in rugby because of the consequences can not be great for your side. But, um, yeah, the more we can sort of this management of space, if that was a real coaching focus, uh, I think, you know, quite a few teams would would probably move up to another level of the way they play. Yeah, and 100%, and like you say, test match level, like that's why it's test match. There's, it's, that's why it's just so difficult. And I think, again, that, you know, the, the best players at any kind of level are the ones who are, once again, I'll say it again, but be able to be in the moment and play on instinct and trust yeah. their instinct. So uh, that space is only there in the moment. It's not, you can't think about it because it's gone. So, and this happens so many times, like for, you know, a forward pod now, they get it, they can do a tip, they can do an inside, they can carry themselves, they can pull it out the back. That's kind of a standard thing at all levels. 
Yeah. But that that forward, there there has to be space. Like you say, like if there's a wall of players in front of him, there has this the space has to be at the back. When that pivot out the back gets the ball, he has a split second decision to make. Does he go himself? Does he hit one of the two runners outside? And does he pull it out the back? Does he have someone inside? You know, there has to be space. But if you're thinking it goes very, very quickly at any level, kind of. Yeah. Well, I think there's two things there that sort of sprung to mind. Number one is is the the system you just if it if it is a system you just described, and a lot of a lot of teams play like that now, where nine to a group of three runners, and then if it goes out the back immediately, if they don't engage with the opposition, then the ten looks at it two more runners a bit further out. <clears throat> my 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 concern about that, uh, and I've nothing against it, but my concern about it is that. It, it sort of limits players um, again on the space vigilance thing that we were just talking about. They tend to play the system as opposed to play what's going on around them in the game. So they don't look, they know what their role is and they just fulfil their role. But actually by fulfilling what their role is, it might be the wrong thing to do. Mm. Uh, so that's number one. And the other thing going back, and I, I've, I've always found this fascinating um, about the the players who got game instinct, I think was that the phrase that you used? Yeah, playing on instinct. Yeah, yeah game instinct, game intelligence is maybe, if, but I understand. I think it's probably the same thing, just different words. And I just wonder sometimes these days that a lot of these young lads start playing rugby at a very young age, and uh, certainly in, in in this part of the world, um, they get into professional organisations at the age of fourteen with DPP and academies and this, that and the other, you know, and you just wonder how much game intelligence they develop. Games players are games players. They can almost turn the hand to any game, you know, and, and history is littered and in years gone by with players who, well, I wouldn't say littered, but there are players who played international sport at various levels, at various games, sorry, uh, and they're just genuine games. They understand how games function. Um, and I think it's it's a very difficult one to explain, but I think they're the sort of players that we're talking about, mm. players who understand how games function um, and, and can feel feel the flow, feel the change, feel the need for change, and then have the ability uh, to affect the change in a positive way. I was... Um, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of Manchester City, but I do do some work with a couple of their coaches. In fact, bizarrely, following this podcast, I've got a Zoom meeting with one of their coaching staff. And I love the way that they play football because uh, it's, it's very similar to what we're talking about now. Players are very, very good at creating, searching for space, creating space, using space. And I've got the technical accuracy and, and the courage at times to to you to to develop that and make it successful anywhere on the field to suddenly be able to break out and be a threat to the opposition and um, you know we we can learn a lot from looking at, uh, at at other sports and other teams who who try and operate in that way. Yeah, class and. I agree 100%. And I often think this, you know, looking at different teams and the top level, and I'm obviously not privy to all these environments, but, 
you know, just looking at this system and filling a role versus an ability to, like you say, create space and to to link up with players. And, you know, I, I wasn't around in the 80s, but, you know, I've read about, say, French rugby and this kind of life of the ball where where they naturally just have play, options off the ball at all times. And that's the way they grow up playing. And I remember, you know, very simply when I was I was lucky, I had Nigel Carlin and Connacht who kind of always told us to play to space or to play what we see. I remember um, a time I was playing number eight and we had a a scrum five or 10 metres from our own line. And I just, like, we're just doing training. And I kind of turned and said, oh, I'll pick carry and then we'll kick off it. And he was like, no, there's three back. We're going to run. And I remember looking around being like, what? Um, Oh, wow. Oh, and I loved it, but I'd never thought of that. And, you know, we had unreal backs and, um, yeah, that, and then it was always like kind of two V1s, three V2s and footwork into contact, get your leg drive, get your arms free and, uh, linking off that. And, and then when I would go back to play club rugby or play different teams, the players wouldn't be running off you. So you then are trying to create space in this way and it's it just doesn't work. And then you're the one who's doing it wrong and just take contact and we're kicking it. And but yeah, this this whole idea of creating space where um and putting people through holes, creating holes, um pulling defenders different ways. And um yeah, I just feel that a lot of I think it's coaches probably minimizing risk or wanting to control it so much that you know you just say do this do this do this do this and the percentages may then say that you have a better percentage chance of winning versus allowing an element of players having freedom to play in the moment and really kind of yeah play what they're feeling like you said about DuPont and Untamak and these guys that they they um at in games can change the way and I know exactly what you mean but I probably won't articulate it very well but change the style or speed of play yeah absolutely blimey what you've just said now is probably worth another podcast <laughs> just to talk through all that lot God, I've just written so many things down <clears throat> which are brilliant and, you know, fitting really with my, just just to sort of listen. Number one is, you talked about, they've got three players back, so why would a number eight pick up and run into contact? That is just a common sense approach to coaching. They've left space, so let's go and attack it. Yeah, that's their problem, not ours. Uh, and I call that opportunistic coaching. Are we constantly looking for opportunities on the field to be able to, to do whatever we want to do? The other one is 2v1, 3v2s, 4v3s. Pierre Villepreu, the great French coach that I spent a lot of time with uh, at one stage in my life, he said the game is just a series of 2v1s, <clears throat> 3v2s and 4v3s. He said, create them wherever you can and execute them. Uh, he said, you don't have to go to ground, get tattled, put players into space. It doesn't work all the time, but it keeps the defence thinking. Once you get a defence, a defences will work out, but if they've got to think out at the same time, you know, let's not forget these guys are rugby players. They're not rocket scientists. So if they've got to work out and think out, something's going to break at one stage. <clears throat> um, what was the other thing? And, and I, th- I totally agree with you on the fear side of things. You know, the, the coaches are afraid if they're not in control, 
what are the risks? What happens if this goes wrong? And my answer to that is, well, why are you here then as a coach? Can't you improve players so it doesn't go wrong? You know, if they put three players back, all it needs is four passes to get into space. Can your players not execute your backs four passes inside your own 22? And if not, why not? And the answer is probably because you, so many times you said, we don't want to make a mistake here. So they're terrified of doing it. They can do it, but they're just terrified. So the, the mental side again takes over the skill side, which is crazy. And the other thing was about freedom and flexibility. I, I use, I, I never know, I can remember them all at the same time. So the seven F words for me are creating a framework <clears throat> which has flexibility and freedom. Uh, you play in a fast, ferocious and fearless manner. But it's all underpinned by having, and depending on the level of the game you play, fun to serious fun. Serious fun being international rugby or professional rugby, maybe. Just ordinary fun is everything below that. So those seven F words always resonated in my head when I'm coaching. And, and I think they were when I played, even though it was, you know, we're going back 40 years now since I played, the 45 years since I played the game. Um, it's interesting. I, I do a little bit of work as a coach advisor for the England under-20s team who were at the World Cup in South Africa not that long ago, and they got knocked out. Well, they lost the semi-final game to France. Scores 52-31. But France put 50 points and nearly everybody they played against. They put 50 on Ireland in the final, um, and Ireland had won the under-20s Grand Slam. And the, the game we're talking about is the game that these French under-20s play. They've obviously, they've got their, whatever you want to call it, development pathway is pretty good because they're playing the game with no fear. They're playing the game where players try and stay on the feet, keep the ball alive. Um, going to ground for them looks as though they just don't want to do it because of the potential consequences. And they've got not only backs who are smart at doing that, but they've got some big forwards who are very good at doing it as well. Um, you know, when they when they get on the front foot, then watch out. So it'd be interesting to see a few of these guys already playing the top 14 in France, even at that young age. Um, you know, and that's a much higher level than international under-20s rugby, so it's no surprise they won the tournament. But when these guys sort of graduate, materialise through to the senior team, then that could be some interesting times then. Yeah, 100%. And something interesting in that too, um, like kind of, I didn't see as much of the under-20s World Cup, but what you're saying there, kind of like connecting back to their DNA and who they are as well of French rugby. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, if I, if I sat back and closed my eyes and thought about French rugby, I know I might be slightly biased because I played there briefly and, I saw the teams of the 70s and 80s, but it is, it's about, it's the three things stand out to me. Number one is the dynamic movement of ball and players. It almost seems non-stop. Uh, and they almost seem, if the referee blows his whistle, you know, you can almost see a look of anger in their eyes. Why have you stopped us playing the game? Because we just want to keep going. The number two is because of the way they train, 
and, and because of the way they continually try to keep the ball life moving, the players, because obviously you can't do that all the time, but the players develop a really good game intelligence, we were talking about before, when to do, what to do, where to do it, how to do it is, is pretty straightforward. And that, I think that's the route that most coaches go down. Let's how to do this, we'll do this, we'll do that. But it's when, where, why we're doing it. And they become pretty good at that. And the third one is, so you've got a dynamic intelligence and the game is punishing. It's very punishing to play against. So, but it's also punishing for the team. It's also punishing for the French players themselves because they constantly got to be thinking about what are we going to do next? What is going to... How do I, as an individual, contribute to the way we are playing to make sure it's an effective contribution, either with the ball or without the ball? And if I'm not doing that, why am I doing it? Hey, Brian here. I work one-on-one with rugby players, helping them perform better on the field, enjoy it more and maximise their careers. If you feel like there's more in you and don't want to have regrets down the line, Head over to offfieldrugby.com now and book a free 30-minute Zoom consultation. And the link is in the show notes. On the call, you talk to me about where you're at now, what you would like to achieve, and I'll show you how I can help you get there. You then go off and decide if you want to invest in yourself and move forward with the one-on-one coaching. For teams, I do mental skills sessions over Zoom. Players will have mindset shifts on the call, but also they'll get exercises to practice going forward. So it's like an S&C program, but for your mental strength. If you're a coach or manager of a team, you can book a free 30-minute Zoom consultation now as well on offfieldrugby.com. If you have any other questions, you can get in touch with me through my social media, at Brian Moylet, at Offfield Rugby, or the website, offfieldrugby.com. All right. Cheers, we'll get back into today's episode. Yeah, 100%. You need to be very focused in 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 the moment again versus if you're playing a slow game where you're setting up a caterpillar rock that takes 10 seconds and you're getting five people on the end of it and then you're putting a box kick on, you can shut down and switch off and then there's a chase and then you run to this part of the field and stand there for the next defensive set you know I know it's crazy and it's interesting was it last year in the Australia New Zealand game where the French referee told was it Foley right at the end of the game you know take your kick and he was and his other his players around him were screaming at him take the kick and they got penalised and the old blacks won the game I just I'd probably no surprise for the French referee because if the referees are like the players they want the game to keep moving I'm just waiting for the moment now. I've not seen it yet, um, where they set up the caterpillar rut that you were talking about. And the referee says, and most of them do now, right, use it. And the scrum ass fiddle about with it, put the foot on the ball, this, that, and the other. And he often has to say, use it twice. Why? Just say, use it once. If they don't use it, that's it. And that would just stop it straight away. You know, let's back up back up our words with actions. Don't say use it and then let them not use it and get on with the game. So, you know, let's let's really let's look as though you know, people talk a lot of sorry, people talk a lot about the laws of the game and how it 
it restricts the way the game's played. It doesn't restrict the way. If the referees referee it properly, then the players will have to find a way to play it properly. So if they say, right, we're going to referee a quick, dynamic game, that's what we want. No messing about at lineouts. No 10-minute chats before you get to the lineout. What are you going to do? No balking at scrums. Let's get in, ball in, away, and off we go and play, etc. And let's have this really quick, dynamic game that, uh, that I think a lot of people are looking for. It doesn't take away, you know, the driving mauling part of the game because that's all part and parcel of the dynamic rugby. And I, I can remember the French teams again, because I played uh, this in mid-70s, where teams like Toulouse, if they created their little four-on-threes in the middle of the field and actually found out this ain't going to work, they would set up mini moles and just drive it forward, then we'd play off that again, or they would play off that again. And, it, you know, it was incredibly difficult to play against. But that seems to disappear from the game now. Yeah, so interesting. I love I love that idea, just that picture you painted there. And I remember, look, when I was 10, 12 years ago, I remember we used to, not regularly, but set up malls and off pods in the middle just to to you know kind of impose ourselves a bit more you know we might we might be playing hard and and you know around the corner it was very much around the corner game back then I remember playing but um and then you just quickly set up a mall if you and it was just it was good and then you play off exactly you suck them in and then you just play wide again and and it just changing up the attack a lot yeah, exactly. I think I think that's the key to it. So the defence is not 100% certain of what's going to happen next. And, and once once you get that mental edge, then you, providing you can execute, you're in business. Yeah, and I love um I love the the seven Fs or the Fs you're saying. I got about six of them down, but um love that. And it's so interesting. Just going back to exits and i thought about three years ago that it was a thing of the past that all code i just kind of i don't know stupidly thought or blindly thought that all coaches had realized that it was just not the way to play um and like you you say you see it often now at the top level Leinster do it a bit where they'll set up a dummy ruck and Gibson Park will turn and whip the ball and they'll just go three passes and they'll break down the edge and um, the All Blacks did it the last day against South Africa I'm pretty sure off a scrum or no not off a scrum sorry Um, but they yeah off a scrum they just banged it a couple of passes they get to the edge and then you can put the kick in but that's that's like playing to the space then because you get you run to, you pass to the space on the edge and then the the back three come up or the winger comes up close the door you put it in behind him and you're just on the front foot and it's so interesting in that coaches by slowing the game down you i think a lot of the time outside of maybe test rugby or outside of you know where they have so much time to to drill this stuff but you give more chance for error by slowing down. I think there's actually, when you play fast and you've everyone playing fast, there's, I think often, and you train that way, I definitely feel that at lower levels, you will have less, you will actually have less mistakes. The reason that there are mistakes is because 
you've half the lads saying slow down slow down kick the ball and then you've half the lads wanting to actually just play rugby and so there's a complete mismatch and then you get mistakes and then people are just on different wavelengths but if everyone's on the same wavelength of like you say like a, a framework so something i think of is very basic but we play the same way unless you hear a snap call yeah so we all know that we're going hard and fast the same way to side to side unless someone sees there's a space and they call brian snap and the nine just turns and whips whips it the other way and then everyone's just on the same wavelength yeah yeah but it goes back to that space vigilance thing that doesn't it somebody's seen we're going to say, yeah, this is what we said we're going to say. But actually, whoa, look over there. You know, they just the opposition just switched off. So let's go and attack these guys. Yeah. So it's, uh, again, it's, I, I, hate, I hate saying this, and I get shot down loads, and I do say it. it's just a common sense approach to playing and coaching the game. Why would you not play to space if it's available? Doesn't matter where you are on the field. I often, I often use the, uh, allude to the pitch being a, an adventure playground and to have a street games approach to it you know where uh, this is your playground you know if an opportunity arises let's go so if that's the case then what do we need in our place technically and physically to make sure that we can do that successfully instead of spending ages doing catch pass clearing out in the gym this that and the other and then deciding, or oh, how we're going to how we're going to translate that onto a pitch, which probably doesn't translate all that well. So they're saying, right, this is how we're going to play. We're going to play this sort of rugby. We're going to train like that, etc. I can remember starting a lot of my coaching sessions um, by playing free play from fifteen meters from our own line, and saying, all we've got to do is score a try. Right, here's the ball, here's a couple of rules, off you go, and I'll stand back and watch and see what your approach is. But, I mean, now we know 15 metres from your own line, you catch at a line out, caterpillar up, and box kick it. You have a scrum, number eight picks up, runs into the opposition middle of the field, maybe around the corner once, split the field, and then kick it. You know, that's... that's that's almost worldwide, isn't it? I yeah. know that there are there are two or three teams who are a little bit more adventurous than that, and you you've highlighted who they are. Um, but I mean, if we if we suddenly said, look, going back to that word opportunistic, here's an opportunity to score a try. You've got a line out 15 meters from your own line. How are you going to translate what I've just said into action? And I saw a clip last year. It's the only one I've ever seen. I think it was Lyon playing in the. I'm not sure. Are they in the top 14 or, mm. or the 10 metres from their own line? They had a four-man line out. And you thought, well, they're going to catch it, drive it a little bit and box kick it or nine to 10 and whack it off the field and start all over again. So it went straight off the top. They had the three-back row guys in the middle of the field. It went nine ten right across the face of the three-back row guys to the man on the outside he broke away, passed it inside, the centre scored on the post. And you, I, I looked at it and I thought, have I really seen that? So I went back and watched it. It was on YouTube, watched it again. And I thought, Jesus, how simple is that? 
it involved one, two, three, five passes and an accurate throw in the line out. That was it. That's all it needed. I mean, rugby at its simplest form, but at its most devastating. Yeah, 100%. And that's, yeah, just a, a simple bit of smoke and mirrors or, you know, you're, you're three big boys and I can, I haven't seen that clip, but I can imagine it. Yeah, you probably have a 12 for someone who's strong and fast running a good line outside them. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so, it's so simple. Anyway. And that's another thing, yeah. isn't it, about the game? I think the teams that play irrespective of how they translate into action play with real simplicity and clarity about what they're doing, have a real purposeful approach to the game, positive, proactive, purposeful, the three Ps. Um, they're very often the teams that are difficult to play against. <clears throat> yeah, chatting to a lot of people here, um, great culture but like yourself. You, and Are you and, in New Zealand? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, the simplicity thing, yeah, yeah, it's just something that comes up often again and again. I just, you know, ask players, you know, what was it that was so so good about it? Or what was it? Or, you know, and, and it all was simple. Like, you just, it was just, yeah, you know, like, it was just simple. And once again, I think coaches, uh, I think maybe they're trying to justify themselves. But sometimes I, I see things and I sometimes just kind of say to other coaches, like, to be honest, that gives me anxiety. Like I'll see these like sheets with all these like so many different things and different zones and then four plays on each and then this and that and then just so much stuff. Yeah. I'll show you something here. Right. I don't, you probably, I don't know if you can read it or not. It doesn't really matter. But that's that framing an attack. Okay. It's on one sheet of A4. So that would be my, that would be my attacking playbook. One sheet of A4. There's no plays on it at all because we look at the principles of play then decide the players and the coach decide, right, how are we going to fill in the detail on that to make that work? So it's a collaborative approach. It's not the coach telling the players, here you do this, here you do that. It's the players, what do you think? You know, what are your ideas? You're in the heat of battle, not me. I'm sat in the stand. So what do you think? You think this will work? You think, shall we give it a go? Um, you know, and I think any idea is worth practicing because from the what might seem the realms of impossibility, suddenly the possible emerges. It, it might be improbable, but it, it's possible. Uh, and that can cause all sorts of consternation for the opposition thinking, Jesus, they can't do that from here. I'm not allowed to. And there was a great, great quote. I'm a big fan of Muhammad Ali's. I was rereading. I don't, have you heard of the author and sadly died now, Norman Mailer? No. He was an American boxing writer, but he was also a, a philosopher. Uh, so it's a bizarre sort of combination. He wrote a book about Muhammad Ali. And about, he said Muhammad Ali was a genius, a sporting genius, not a boxing genius. And he said, if you want me to define genius, genius is balance on the edge of the impossible. And I thought, what a fantastic way to approach coaching and playing. Look for the impossible and practice it. And draw out of it what is possible. And it may well be that equates to genius. I don't know if that makes sense. It made sense to me, but maybe I've just got a weird mindset. I don't know. 
whether that makes sense or not. No, that's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah, and kind of divergent thinking. Um, like you you mentioned earlier, oh, they can't do that. And and yeah, it's just or yeah, at the edge of yeah, the impossible. Yeah, it's no, I love that being at the edge. Yeah, it's yeah, brilliant. But my first question, very often, I mean, I, I didn't, I was very fortunate in many ways. I played in the era where there was no coaching. So we we developed ourselves. But when I did eventually answer coach, when he'd say, well, well, we can't do that for me, I'd say, why not? Give me one reason why not we can't do that. Well, look at the players around us. You know, I can remember playing in a Lancashire team in the Old County Championship, six British Lions players in the side. And the coach saying to me, oh, we can't do that for me. I said, well, hang on a minute. Said, look at these guys. Jeez, these guys can do it pretty easily, I would think. There's probably literally nothing we couldn't do. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't quite go that no, far. To, no, but to... Going back to the, what we talked about earlier, I think you, you highlighted it, and then I backed it up about the coach's fear of what might, might happen if it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, yeah, so, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then that obviously, yeah, that's the, that's the issue. I think coaches, yeah, should spend more time on upskilling and empowering and encouraging their players versus mm. dampening them. <laughs> yeah. I think we, I can't remember, we may have talked about this last time we spoke, but one of the things I feel is, Maybe it's not disappeared, but it's sort of taking second place in, in the coaching in the coaching world now is the power of powers of observation. Mm. Like if you if you plan a session in great detail, which a lot of coaches do, um, then you know what's coming next. Over a period of time, if you do that cons- consistently, the players will probably know what's coming next. And and then the observational um the need to observe becomes less and less because you know what's going to happen next. You know what to expect, etc. Instead of saying, look, we're going to, let's see if we can open up some short sides today to attack down. The, the, the sort of thing, the snap play that you talked about earlier on. Right, here's a ball, here's a pitch. Um, maybe the attack, you, I'll give you an extra two players and we put some rules in who goes to the tattle area and this, that and the other. But off you go. And let's see if you can work things out to to develop something like that. Then as a coach, you just step back and observe and see how the players are going about it. And, and when there's a break in play, go in and listen to what they're talking about, what was good, what we need to improve on, how do we need to do that? And if, this, if you think as a coach there's anything that's really important that they may have missed, just throw in, well, why don't you have a look at this, guys? You'll just pop this in and see see what difference that might make. And then off they go and play again. Um, you know, and I, I, I just think, looking back, that's the way we used to train in amateur days. We used to play around with things, so we didn't have a coach. So we're all coming up with ideas, how we can do this, how we can do that. Um, we weren't very sophisticated, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, modern day players, 
given the opportunity, will be outstanding at finding answers to solutions, uh, to problems and solutions like that. 100%, 100%. And at something uh, two, three seasons ago, uh, maybe three seasons ago, I like, heard something like that, like you said, and the observation and and taking a step back. And I found then 85%, 80%, 85%, of half times, the players saw everything I saw and had solved everything I was thinking within three, four, three minutes of half time. And then, you know, like, yeah, when I just take a step back or when you don't feel the need to justify yourself by tell, saying 10 things, you know? I know. And you get to number four and the players are thinking, what was number one? And number yeah. one was probably, number one was probably the most important. <laughs> and all they remember is eight, nine and 10, which are pretty irrelevant anyway. So they think, right, we'll go and put the irrelevant stuff into practice now. <laughs> I know that that sounds that sounds stupid, but it's it, there's probably an element of truth in it. You know, you try and pass all this information over and forgotten the real important stuff, which is often the stuff you come out with first. And they go out and they try and put into operation the yeah. least stuff. But you're absolutely right, Brian, that if if you listen. Just let players sit down at half time, talk three or four minutes. And if you go around and just listen, they, they'll probably be talking a lot of the time about the stuff that you're thinking about telling them. And all you need to do then is, okay, so I've been listening. You're absolutely spot on with the things that you said. Because maybe there's just one thing that I'd like to add. Right, off you go, lads. 100%. And 100%. And it's something that's interesting just with listening and you need to to do that you need to be calm and you need to be able to relax and it's something I'm just aware of because the podcast I need to listen as well and when it's funny if people listen back to earlier podcasts the first 20 or 30 I did I was probably talking over the other person quite a lot because I wasn't probably listening it was probably my own just not being comfortable in doing something like this and and yeah so being uncomfortable and then you know asking questions just yeah and as a coach it's similar in that you need to be able to be able to relax and kind of feel your feelings be aware of your feelings you know you're probably your urge to just jump in and talk be bring awareness to that and be able to observe that also so you're observing the players but you're observing yourself so that you're not um yeah just going on emotion there it, yeah, and I sort of I know this is off 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 topic, I suppose. It sort of brings up another question of what actually is the role of a coach? What is a coach? You know, is he is he a guide? I mean, most people I would think have got the picture of a coach, somebody standing in front of a group telling them what to do. My picture of a coach is a group of players with a coach stood behind, observing, then advising. The, the coach isn't in front, the players are in front, coach is behind, leading from the shadows. Yeah. Absolutely. And I loved um, what you said the last time, and uh, I loved it and I, I took it on. But um, the conciliary or the. Yeah. Conciliary, leading from the shadows. Yeah. 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 That's a great way to approach coaching. Yeah. I think I told you last time too, I don't know how much time we got left, but I think I told you last time that um, 
I coached a school team one season that never kicked the ball. Do you know what I don't, did I mention that? Yeah. And that, in terms of developing my ability to be some sort of conciliary, that was fantastic. Because I'd never seen a game of rugby played like that. I, in fact, that's a lie. When I was seven or eight years old in the back streets, we used to play like that and never kick the ball because we weren't big enough for the ball. Then it's a big, heavy leather one. Um, but it, it, it was. It was almost blimey. Let's see what. Let's see how they interpret what what we're going to do. And it, they were driving it, not me. Well, initially they were driving it. Then it became, as I said before, a collaborative approach. But that it really developed me as a thinking. You know, I the, the coaching, the coach is there to facilitate um, how the players interpret what they want to do, and if there are faults in their technical side or physical side of the game, I can help with that. If there's something they're missing on the bigger picture of how they're trying to play, I can help with that. But actually, let's help them to drive it as much as possible. And just be there in the background, offering advice when it's when it's going to be effective, not when it's going to be restrictive. It's not going to interfere with performance; it's going to enhance performance. Um, and I, I just wonder sometimes, you know, whether coaches feel, as you quite rightly say, Brian, that they've got to jump in at half time and tell players, you know, with all their wisdom. Do this, do that, do this, and number ten, do this. And it'd be interesting at that point. Somebody turn around and say, "What was number one?" <laughs> and he goes, oh, I can't remember that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love that story about uh, the the lads in a school team, if I remember correctly, saying that we didn't want to kick the ball, and just the. What I love about that, that they weren't so hung up on winning. Of course, they wanted to win, I'm sure, you know, but that they're, you know, experimenting and, and that that's so courageous as well for them to do, to to say that and, and do that. Absolutely. And that incident, they won 11 out of 13 games that season and beat some teams, school teams that they're not beaten for 20 years and beat them pretty comfortably too. Um, so it was a successful way of doing it. And not one of them went on to play any senior level rugby. They all disappeared off to university and other places. I'm still in contact with them, though. Still meet up once a year just to have a chat about old times and see what they're getting up to. But interestingly, some of them, I mean, this is tell us you should if you've got other things to talk about that are more important. Interestingly, a lot of them have been quite successful in their lives and they put some of it down to the fact that they were allowed to drive their own performance and come up with answers and solve problems and make good decisions and bad decisions and learn from that uh, during that year playing rugby. So it sort of, it was a, it was almost like a very holistic approach to it. It's had, it's sort of had meaning for life later on for some of them. Uh, they were under pressure. Sometimes they got it wrong, but eventually over the season, they started getting it more right than wrong. And they said it sort of helped quite a lot for some of them in their lives after that. I think that's so cool. And it's not, uh, I don't think it's uncommon in that. Um, I know that a lot of 
I don't know who I am or what I am or anything. I would attest a lot of the good traits in me down to rugby and down to sport. I played a lot of sports until I was 16, 17, until rugby kind of took over, but and good coaches I've had. And, you know, I've done degrees and whatever. And I've always said I've learned so much more in rugby environments you know, public speaking, leadership, uh, hard work, discipline, all these things, you name it. And yeah, it's all down to, you know, good environments, you know, and it really is. And coaches encouraging players to take ownership of all those areas you just talked about. And again, just being there as a facilitator, conciliar, whatever, in the shadows, in the background. Yeah. Yeah. 100% and I know our time is I don't want to cut into your um, your next one but with just on that with Man City or what kind of stuff do you do with coaches yeah well I, I actually work with two one is the under 16s coach who a very successful side and he's he's very player centered very holistic in his approach um, and the other one is the head of coaching in the academy from the under 15 to the under 21 side. That's the next layer down from the first team. And he's very much encouraging his coaches to be the sort of coaches that we're talking about. Um, I think one of the things I talk about a lot, you know, because a, a lot of, I get really annoyed, Brian, when people say, oh, you talk a lot of fluffy stuff and this, that and the other. All, all this is about this, this four things. It's about consistent excellence in everything you do. Um, whatever you, you respect the basics, the fundamentals of the game, you respect the opposition you play against, and you respect the game itself. You know, not try to be very fluffy and, you know, think, ooh, head in the clouds and this, that, and the other. There's a real reality about everything that's done. Um, and they seem to be very, very good at marrying all those things together and streamlining all that into performance on the field. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great environment to be in. I've learned so much. You know, I've, I've worked many uh, ten years now in with the Premier League football, doing some advisory work in coaching, and I met some fantastic people and learned so much. And uh, and again, you know, a lot of the stuff that's come through from the top sides I've worked with are that simplicity and clarity. And clarity, interesting, clarity is not detail. Clarity is less detail. And that leads to simplicity. And, and I think, I can't remember, I came up with the phrase of somebody else said, you play with simplicity and clarity, it enables you to play with pace and accuracy. And I, I looked, I watched the, <clears throat> the the French team in the final against Ireland in the under-20s. And I sent a message through to Stuart Lancaster, who's now coaching in, he's head coach at Racing in, in France, and said, you know, these guys, they played with power, pace, skill and space. The young French team, power, pace, skill and space. And that sort of encapsulated everything that you'd want to see, really, in a, in a rugby team. Team with power, powerful players. Not strong, powerful, dynamic strength. Play fast, very skillful, 
always looking for space. Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, um, hey, thank you so so much for your time, Brian. Um, I we'll, love it. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Always enjoyed chatting with you about stuff like this because I never get much opportunity these days. So, yeah. If you have a yeah. short of a podcast in the future, let me know. <laughs> oh, I will. Hundred percent. I will. Hundred percent. Cheers. Cheers, Brian. All the best. Enjoy New Zealand. Cheers for listening into the pod today. If you're new to the pod, welcome. Be sure to check out some earlier episodes and subscribe wherever you're listening so that you get the new episodes when they're released. In my mid-twenties, I began studying the mind and that led me to playing the best rugby in my life and enjoying it so much all the time, like regardless of results. Whereas when I was younger, there were highs and lows and it felt uncertain, like I was on a roller coaster. But then, when I began developing and harnessing my mind, it felt like I'd absolutely cracked the code. Now I work one-on-one with players, and yes, I help you overcome challenges, and we do mental skills work so that you can consistently perform at your peak. But I also help you expand your mind and grow as a person. You know the way you often feel like you have more in you. You have more to express. You have more to bring. And it kind of gets frustrating when, yes, you're getting some results, but you know you have more inside you. I help you bring that out. Every single player that I've worked with one-on-one for over 12 months has made a team that they didn't think they could make in that time and or signed a new increased contract that way more than covered the investment that they made in themselves for the one-on-one coaching. If you're a player or coach and would like to learn more, head over to offfieldrugby.com now and book your free 30-minute Zoom consultation with me. Through this podcast, I want to help millions of people live happier, more fulfilled and more successful lives because I absolutely know that it's possible. If you want to be an absolute legend now and help me out, there's three things you can do. First is to share the pod. You can send it on some friends, share it on social media, and simply just tell people about it. Second, you can leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. On Apple Podcasts, when you click into the pod, you can scroll down and there's an option to leave a review and up to a five-star rating. And on Spotify, when you click into the pod, On the left-hand side, you'll see a little star. You can click on that and then leave up to a five-star rating again. And third thing, lastly, just make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening. Those three things, sharing the pod, leaving a rating and a review and subscribing, really, really help the podcast grow. Helps us help more people. So thank you so, so much. Please connect with me over on social media. Instagram is at Brian Moylet, at Offfield Rugby. LinkedIn is Brian Moylet. And any thoughts, questions, feedback, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. Thanks, Emil, for listening today. I really, really appreciate it. Be good to yourself, get after it, and I will see you next week. Cheers.